Hola oyentes, mi nombre es Fiorella Pinillos y este es Below the Radar, a Knowledge Democracy podcast. Welcome to the sixth episode of our conversation series. Below the Radar is created by SFU's Fan City Office of Community Engagement and is recorded on the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. In this episode, we are joined by Janice Abbott, the CEO of Atira Women's Resource Society. Paige Smith sits down with Janice to discuss how the pandemic has affected the work of Atira in combating violence against women. Thank you for agreeing to this interview. We were really excited to have you join us. Yeah, I'm happy to be included. Yay. Okay. I was thinking we could just start with you introducing yourself. Sure. So uh, my name is Janice Abbott. I'm the CEO of the Atira Group of Women Serving Agency. I've been with Atira for almost 28 years, uh, 28 years in September. I've always been in this position. We were just a uh, a much smaller organization in 1992, so um, I think I had a different, I, well, I know I had a different title. So maybe you could tell us a little bit more about the story of Atira and what you folks do and what your mandate is. Sure. So we are, um, uh, at our essence, our core, we're a, a women's anti-violence organization. We were established in 1982, became a registered charity in 1983, not a registered charity, sorry, incorporated in 1983, opened our first transition house in 1987 in South Surrey, and that's where I started working um, almost 28 years ago, and we are now um, a large kind of multi-service agency, although we remain a women's anti-violence organization, but we manifest our mandate primarily through housing. Um, and then do a bunch of other stuff. We have three, four, five-day trauma-informed daycares. We um, counseling programs for women impacted by violence, legal advocacy. A wholly owned for-profit subsidiary that manages licensed property management companies. So we're quite large. I saw that you guys do a lot of different work. It's it's really amazing. It feels like a kind of you, you look at it like from a holistic kind of standpoint. So maybe you could talk about, with all these different programs you folks are running, how they've had to shift and change because of the pandemic. Yeah, so we were um, we were pretty pre- prepared. Uh, we got ahead of um, the pandemic earlier than most and made some really quick decisions um, that we enacted quickly. So starting in mid-March, we, for example, implemented guest restrictions in our supportive housing buildings, particularly those buildings that have shared bathrooms and narrow hallways where physical distancing wasn't going to be possible. We um, we did things like bought, uh, I think we bought 20 marine toilets in case we had folks in buildings with shared bathrooms who were either symptomatic or tested positive so that they would be able to self-isolate in their rooms and not have to use the shared bathroom. We um, expanded our food program so that people could count on getting fed at home and not have to go out into the community for meals. We launched a program out of our, we have a small sort of office or drop-in space, I guess, um, in the downtown east side, and we turned that into sort of a, a hub to distribute food and cleaning supplies and other life necessities to women who were self-isolating at home. We set up a call in line um, with peers and staff, so we deployed some of our staff so women can call 24-7 if they need something. We set up a tent, um, Kitty Corner from Oppenheimer Park, 
to expand our, uh, we have a women-only safe, safe injection site that we had to reduce the number of people inside, so we set up an outdoor tent so that we wouldn't have to reduce services. So those are a, a couple of things I can kind of think of. We put, um, I think within the first, by the end of March, we had put not the prettiest, but very functional hand-washing stations at the entrance of all of our buildings. We MacGyvered them together with buckets, started distributing soap on demand to anybody who wanted or needed it, set up some laundry services, some extra salads. We brought in a contractor to do extra cleaning and sanitization, especially in those buildings where people share bathrooms. So yeah, done a, a lot of stuff. Started sending out a, a bi-weekly tenant newsletter to provide information about COVID, information and updates, because particularly in the buildings that were we're operating people because of their marginalization and often don't have access to information. So, so yeah, we've been doing um, bi-weekly COVID-related mm. newsletters, everything, information, and how to prevent the spread, to stay, how to use safely um, under the current environment, to where to get additional information. So, yeah. We all look back with 2020, but looking back for you, why do you think your organization was so quick to respond? Um, you know, without sounding whatever, it's because I just made the decision to do it. <laughs> so, um, I decided in, in March when it kind of hit, I had a look at the information and um, decided to do what I thought we needed to do to keep our staff and tenants healthy and, and beg forgiveness with our funders. Yeah. Well, so, it seems like it was the right choice. Yeah, yeah, I don't, I don't regret um, anything that any decision we made. We, um, because we're a large enough organization that we had a bit of cash flow, so I didn't, you know, I didn't need the money in advance. We could cash flow some of the stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, we would have been uh, in trouble at some point if um, our funders hadn't come along, and they didn't come along this frontier. Obviously, our funders also made some really good decisions with respect to all of the, all, all non-profits, I guess. But if that hadn't happened, we would have found ourselves in a bit of trouble. Right. You mentioned, I think the place you were talking about, that's Kitty Corner to Oppenheimer Park. That's, that's the sister square, right? Yes. Maybe you could talk a little bit more about that and what that place is and why it was created. As I mentioned earlier, one was definitely to expand space so women could use safely, but also it was a response to the violence that women were sharing with us that was happening inside the park. And, and as as COVID progressed and more people were on the street, so as like Carnegie Center shut down and the Evelyn Scholar Center closed, etc. at the beginning, the violence, I mean, the violence in the park, we've been hearing about it for a while, so, so part of it was just the right time irrespective mm-hmm. of COVID and part of it was COVID related I guess but we needed to have a safe place that was adjacent to the park. We also we have a building there that has a, a, a women only modular housing project mm-hmm. on that site and we were had a group of very aggressive young men who were taking over the yard and so women were having to run a gauntlet to get home. Mm-hmm. So part of it was to create women only space on the entire site so that those men would move along and get off of our property and let women access their homes in peace, really, yeah. um, to create a safe place for women who 
who needed to flee from the park, which, as you know, has since been to count, and also expanded uh, shared using space for women. Right. And since you folks are so close and work so directly, do you know much about how the new movement to try and provide housing for people in Oppenheimer Park, in Oppenheimer Park, in the hotels, the vacant hotels, do you know what the ramifications have been of that so far? So we operate, so a couple of other things we did, we early on we were asked to offer or to open and operate a leased hotel uh, for Vancouver Coastal Health that would provide space to folks who are homeless and tested positive for COVID. Mm. So we opened that in early, I think we opened that by early April, trained all the staff, worked closely at Vancouver Coastal Health. We only ever had, it was a 65-room building and we only ever had 10 guests. There, There really weren't any outbreaks in the homeless population. And... And of those 10 guests, I think only three were actually COVID positive at the end. Mm-hmm. So we did that early on. And then we're, we were also asked to operate two of the hotels that were leased to house folks um, out of Oppenheimer Park. Mm-hmm. So we opened those at the beginning of a sort of late April, early May. Early May, I guess, not late April, early May. Right now, the, the buildings are, in our experience, pretty quiet. But we expect, and we've been talking with Vancouver Coastal Health, BC Housing, the city, we expect that as people get kind of settled into the neighborhoods, that it will begin to have an impact on the surrounding neighborhoods. And so we're kind of preparing for what that looks like and and what resources are needed. Right. This is a bit more of a broad question, but maybe you could speak to what you folks do to create safe spaces for women that are escaping the violence specifically during the pandemic? Like what, what do you do to make that space safe? So I should, um, I should probably also share, I forgot about this. We also opened a temporary transition house Mm. um, during COVID, which opened at at the beginning of April. It's a a partnership with Easterfield house. So Easterfield house, which you may know provides accommodation for people who are coming from out of the province and have kids who need surgery. So it's located close to uh, to BC Women's and Children's Hospital. Um, so uh, when the when surgeries were cancelled as part of the provincial government's response to COVID, and they no longer needed that that resource for people to um, to stay in, we uh, we took over that space and started offering housing to women fleeing violence. Mm-hmm. Um, and that lease goes until the end of July. Right. So um, it's 49 rooms, and we, um, I think we've had close to 40 families in there for most of the time, and now we're working to find some housing for the 1st of August. Wow, that's great. So then is that being the priority, is, is expanding these resources as possible because of, the, in these reports that have been circulating, how there's been this increase in uptick in violence because of likely people having to isolate themselves like is that being one of the key focuses for you guys is just expanding the amount of beds the amount of transition homes the amount of resources available yes definitely and we're also um doing a lot more outreach so like mm. i said earlier delivering delivering uh food delivering cleaning supplies we've got a 24-hour call in line so women can call at any time. The challenge when you're self-isolating with your abuser is you probably can't make calls or leave easily yeah. because you're home. everybody's home all the time. 
So we're trying to recognize that and support support women who may not be able to reach out because it's not safe for them to actually call anybody. Right. This is a tougher question, but if someone does need help right now, what is the type of steps they should take? If they, you know, what's that first step that you would, you would, I mean, obviously it's their, their agency and their choice, but like what, if someone was looking for suggestions, what would you suggest the first step be? To leave a violent relationship or get out? Yeah, exactly. Like, that's a hard question, but is there something that would be useful for anyone to hear? to that how can people like other folks that aren't experiencing the violence how can other folks help to try and prevent any violence or support people that are going through that stuff like this like is because of the pandemic should we be like reaching out to the women in our lives more should we be checking in with each other more i think most of us know not all of us but most of us know um when our friends or family members are in a relationship that's not healthy for them. Mm-hmm. And I think it's incumbent upon us all to pay attention and check in and make sure that that person um, knows that you're there for them, that you will help them if they call you, that you won't judge, that you won't judge them or, you know, pressure them to do something they're not ready or interested in doing, but that you're, you're an ear. And that if they need or ask, ask for help, that they can count on you, but that you won't. You won't pressure them to do anything they're not ready to do. Totally. And it's important for, the, for those of us who are concerned that we have uh, um, someone we care about who's in an abusive relationship, it's important that we educate ourselves. So mm-hmm. if I have a good friend or a family member that I know is in a, or my sister, whatever, is in a, a relationship I'm concerned about, I should, I should know who to call if she calls me. Yeah. I should be. I should be prepared. I should know. You know, I should have a list of um, transition houses or support. You know, support services, so that so that if she tells me she wants help, I don't have to do the research. I've already got it there. Yeah, and you can just pass it on or, or whatever. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, you, you really have to listen and support her in the way that she needs or wants to be supported in that moment. Right. That makes sense. Okay, and then kind of the last sort of question I wanted to ask you is I saw that you folks had written with a number of other non-for-profits in the area 
you'd written an open letter to Minister Simpson regarding the income assistance for the vulnerable communities, uh, specifically okay. like the people relying on CPPD, um, sex workers, street vendors, and binners. I was just wondering if there had been any movement from the province in regards to these issues, if you folks had heard anything about that. No, we have no, um, we, have, we haven't seen any, so this is specifically for people who aren't eligible for things like the, the Canadian Emergency Response Benefits, whatever that's called. <laughs> um, so people, because typically for, the, for federal benefits, you need to have something, you need to file a tax return, basically. Right. So, um, so no, we've, we've not, I mean, there's been some, you know, minor increases in uh, monthly benefits from the provincial government, um, but nothing, nothing really more than that. Thank you again to Janice Abbott for joining us on our Below the Radar conversation series. Stay in the loop with Below the Radar by following us on Twitter and Facebook. Be sure to subscribe wherever you find your podcast, including Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Overcast, and Player FM. And please leave us a review. As always, thank you to the team that puts this podcast together, including myself, Fiera Pinillos, Rachel Wong, Paige Smith, Jackie Bonga, and Kathy Feng. David Steele is a composer of our theme music, and thank you for listening. Tune in next time for a brand new episode of Below the Radar. Adios. Adios.